You know, a few years ago, I had a conversation with a friend who, um, who lived elsewhere, but he'd reached a point of crisis in his life. And it wasn't really anything that um, anyone could necessarily see, but it was very real to him. And he was in his 40s, and he was in a job uh, that was making a more than decent living for him. Uh, He had a wife, two growing children. He had a membership at the club, right? But by every measure, he had achieved what you and I would call the American dream. Except there was a problem. He hated his job. And his hatred really wasn't all that complicated. He hated it, first of all, because it was mundane. There were very few challenges that came across his desk, and when they did, they felt insurmountable. The second reason he said he hated the job was because he wasn't counting on the fact that there would be as many bad actors as there would be employed alongside with him, making his life miserable, and, but who always seemed to somehow get the uh, raises and the promotions over him. So I asked him, I was like, so why don't you quit that job? And his answer was basically, because I make too much money and I have way too many obligations for me to actually take the risk. And he said something I'll never forget. He said, honestly, I just feel stuck. I have sort of a general life rule that no one is more miserable than when someone is stuck between two unlivable alternatives. Mostly because that's typically when people start to do things that they're inevitably going to regret. And my question this morning I want to begin is, is there anybody that relates to that person? I think there's plenty of people. And I would venture to say that there are quite a few things in our lives that, like our jobs and our work, that can both frustrate us on the one hand, but also be enormously gratifying on the other. And my premise this morning is that there's actually a biblical reason for those instincts. You know, the ancient Greeks had their own mythology about how the world came into being. Uh, The gods and humans in the beginning lived together in harmony. And in that place, nobody had to work. The earth just produced everything that they needed. But while that might sound like a paradise to many of us, you need to realize that Genesis 1 could not be more different. Here, you don't see the, the gods in conflict with each other, but rather you see the one true God. And what is he doing? He's creating. He's working. So when God creates man in his image, he makes naturally a working creature. I don't think it can be stressed enough that God's establishment of man's need to work takes place prior to the entrance of sin in the world. You know, in Greek mythology, and actually I'm guessing in most of our imaginations, work was an essential evil. You know, when Pandora opens her box and all the evils of life shoot out of it, one of the things that comes out of it is work. Look, we, uh, we, we've entitled this series this fall Origins because we're trying to get at the root of why Christians look at the world the way in which they do. And there's no description of our humanity that would be complete without considerably considering what arguably takes up the vast majority of most of our times, and that is our jobs. There's a natural progression from Genesis chapter 1 where this focuses on God's creative work and these broad sweeping motions While in Genesis 2, it zooms in, in effect, on man to see him in his environment and in his relationships. Which means that right out of the gate, we have the Bible introducing us to one of the most fundamental elements of human existence. What it is like for us to relate to our work. But because of that, it gives us also, I think, some amazing wisdom to help us get properly oriented around what our work is supposed to be. And maybe more importantly, what our work is not supposed to be. So three sort of orienting thoughts this morning as we begin. I want to look at the sacredness of our work. 
I'm going to consider the danger in our work. And then finally, the goal of our work. Let's take that first one, how work is sacred. Look, verses 5 through 9, every time I read them, I was like, that's just the most lovely description of, of, of man, isn't it? There's these growing plants. There's a way for them to be watered. And even when you get down to verse 8, you think to yourself, this is the most quaint thing I've ever read. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. I don't know whether you have a conception of the creative God of the universe who owns and is powerful over everything, sort of getting down into the dirt to plant himself a garden, but that's the biblical image. And for our purposes, what we see then is a God who is working. Creation was his work. Remember, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that there was an ancient Babylonian creation myth known as the Enuma Elish. Well, the story goes that the god Marduk uh, goes to war with, against the ancient goddess Tiamat and actually defeats her. And using the ashes of that great conflict, he uses those ashes to create the world. Um, can you imagine what that kind of origin story does to the psychology of a people? My guess is you don't need to be Sigmund Freud to realize that might have been pro problematic to basically say you exist because of an uneasy balance of rival deities. That's problematic. But not this God. He doesn't have any rivals. He is the Lord of all he has made. He is not subject to it in any way. So when this kind of God creates, again, in his image, it shouldn't be a surprise for us to see what he says in verse 15. Look at it. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to, here's the phrase, work it and keep it. Now look, that little phrase, work and keep it, is a word pair that occurs really all over the first five books of the Old Testament. And in no less than five of those occurrences, that phrase is used to describe the activity of priests in that Jewish worship tent that we call the tabernacle. And my premise this morning is this, there's no way that that's an accident. But what does it mean? Well, it means that human beings are placed in the garden so that they can function as priests there. The work Adam was called to do is priestly in that it's supposed to connect our world to God's world. And so what you have just with that one simple notion is the scaffolding of a completely unique approach to work that Christians talk about. Think about this for a second. Your experience of work, or really of anything for that matter, is going to be determined by the story that you are believing at that moment in order to make sense of it. Uh, Tim Keller's fantastic little book, Every Good Endeavor, unpacks this idea using illustration from philosopher Alistair McIntyre that I thought was kind of fun. And it begins, you to it begins by imagining uh, that you are found yourself on a street corner. Let's say you're on the square, particularly at one time, at random, and suddenly a young man walks up behind you and whispers something in your ear. He says this, the name of the common wild duck is Hysterionicus, Hysterionicus, Hysterionicus. And then he walks away. Now, you may have understood his sentence, you may have gotten the English, but his action makes no sense. What does that mean? Well, the only way to know what it means is to understand the story. And you realize there's multiple possibilities, right? Number one, the man could be insane. Okay, that would explain his strange behavior. But secondly, we also might imagine that perhaps yesterday, someone that looked like you was your same gender, height, and general appearance, 
Maybe they approached this young man in his work in the library and asked him the question, what is the Latin word for the wild duck? And today, this young man mistook you for that person. That's a reasonable story, right? Or perhaps the young man, even better, is a foreign spy. And he's waiting at some prearranged rendezvous to sort of utter a, a, a certain code uh, which will identify him to your contact. You know, the first story is kind of sad. The second story is a little silly. And that third one a little more dramatic. But the point is this. Without the handle of the story, there's no way to understand the meaning of what just happened. And there's certainly no way to answer this man who just said this. What's the point? The point is your experience of everything is determined by the story that you are believing at that time in order to make sense of it. So the question for us this morning becomes this. How is it then that we make sense of our work in the Bible's terms? Well, it depends on the story that you believe about that work. And you can think of all kinds of options. You could say maybe some of you relate to your work from the posture of a platform of, of resentment, hating that you've been subject your entire life to that terrible office. For others of you, you have so much of your mental energy and life wrapped up in your work because, quite frankly, that's the only place where you feel significant in life. If you fail there, you fail in your pursuit, not just of your job, but of your very meaning, your identity. But in Genesis 2, God says, look, I have put you in the world to work and keep it, by which I mean you are here to work so that the world is being unified around my lordship. That there is a union between heaven and earth, which, by the way, is why Jesus instructs us to pray, as we just did, that we would say, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because you and I are priests in this world. A kingdom of priests, Paul will go on to say, working vigorously to see the world unified under one head, even Christ. So Genesis 2 is laying out the scaffolding for a view of work that is just glorious, is it not? It's electric with significance, hence the use of the word sacred. But secondly, though, I want you to notice also the danger of our work. Because verses 16 and 17 get very interesting. Because no sooner has God put the man in the garden, given his commission, than he plants two trees. Look at what it says. It says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What in the world is that all about? Well, I thought one commentator I read put his finger on it. When he explained that the purpose of the trees is to create this sense in Adam's heart that the relationships that God is forging with him was to be something that Adam actually stepped up into conscious acceptance of. In other words, God wanted to apply the terms of this relationship very much into Adam's own heart. And so therefore he gave what this commentator called a test command. A test command. You see, prior to putting the two trees in the garden, Adam did what God wanted him to because his heart never suggested that he do anything else. Remember, Adam did not have the problem of original sin like you and I have. But what he gave him was this, this possibility of conflict. And because there was the possibility of conflict, Adam was able to experience this relationship, this covenant, as if it was a two-way thing. So first of all, we have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By the way, that word knowledge there simply means to distinguish. Good was what God you know, commanded. Evil was what he forbade. The point, though, was how man was going to decide what was right or wrong. 
And by, was he going to use his own judgment or was he going to listen to God's word? By the way, this is the reason why in chapter 3, after Adam and Eve blow it, more on this in a couple of weeks, God says, man has now become like one of us, knowing that is distinguishing for himself between good and evil. What was, issue, what was at issue was the issue of allegiance. But the second tree is the tree of life. That was also in the garden. When Adam ate this tree, it was a way to affirm by God this covenant that was between them. And for Adam to say to God, I'm ready to listen to you. I'm ready to accept your interpretation of things. And in exchange, Adam got to experience God's affection for him. When he ate that tree, it confirmed his faith for him. Now, what's the point? Well, the point is, by God putting this test command so close to Adam's commission to work, we can see that there is nothing like our work to suggest to our hearts that we are the ones that are in control of our lives. Our work has a special way of doing this. Modern conceptions of work, Keller will go on to argue in his book, are wrapped now around this idea that only the individual self, only the, the absolute individual freedom of man can really make sense of life. And therefore, my job is nothing more than an expression of my individuality. I don't work because necessarily I need to sort of provide for a family. What I'm looking for is my passion. I want to find my passion. Why? Because the only justification for what I'm doing is that I'm on an identity quest with my job. Gentlemen, after you leave this place, people will ask you when you meet them for the first time for your name. The second question they will ask you is, and what do you do? That's the reason why we do that. One philosopher put it this way. He said, in the modern worldview, work is now an arena for self-realization. A means not only of educating oneself, but also fulfillment. Work is the defining activity of man. His aim is to create himself by remaking the world around him. That's the modern secular mindset. I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure I've read a sentence that's more quite as spot on as that when we try to define ourselves. But it's highly dangerous. Because if that's true, it means that our jobs will hold out a constant invitation to invest them with way too much importance. Everything hinges on our work. If that's true, then that's the reason why we misuse it as well. And there's all kinds of ways for us to misuse it. Is that not true? For some of us, we overlook what we would call menial jobs. Why? Well, because I'd be too embarrassed to admit to my high school friends that I was doing, quote, that kind of job. Or maybe on the other hand, I say things like, well, that's why I'm just a housewife. Why do we talk that way? Overwork, secondly, also becomes a matter of course for a rising generation. Why? Because I'm not just fighting to meet the needs of mine and my future family. I'm actually trying to build an identity. Work, therefore, becomes an expression of my neuroses. And finally, I do think that one of the other negative effects of the dangers of this is that the modern quest for freedom will oftentimes end up baptizing some, very, some competitive practices that make me wonder that previous generations might have actually blushed at. I mean, there are no rules, right? So we could do what we do to maximize profits. I mean, who cares who gets crushed along the way? It should be little wonder that we're still overflowing in systemic corruption among our culture's biggest businesses. But this is the challenge of the trees, though, isn't it? 
Because our culture has this complicated relationship with what it really means to be free in terms of self-realization that we think that to be really free is to be absent of any restrictions in life. But Moses is suggesting the exact opposite. Freedom is not to be found in the absence of restrictions. Real human freedom is in the presence of the right restrictions. That's what Genesis is screaming at us. Now look, more on that in the weeks to come, especially in the next two weeks. But suffice to say, there will be few greater dangers in your life than those that are presented to you in your work. There's soul flourishing there, but there is soul captivity that is awaiting you there as we attempt to work. How in the world do we navigate that? Well, that brings me to the third and final point. We not only see the sacredness of work and the danger in work, but we also see what the goal of our work is. Because my premise is that we only are able to survive this if we are believing a new story about our work. And I find it interesting that we have the seeds of it in this very passage. Have you ever read verses 10 through 14 with a sense of just how weird those passages are? Why in the world would it matter that there's a river coming out of Eden that branches into four tributaries? And who cares whether the gold in Havilah is, is good gold or not? Look, for a moment here, you're going to have to learn how to read, though, like the way a Jewish person would learn. Remember, Adam is set into the garden as a priest. Well, where is it that priests work? Priests work in temples. They work in holy places. Well, this is the reason why throughout the whole Bible, you'll see that there are all these signs that the Garden of Eden was like a temple. It's everywhere. When you see the directions for how the book of Exodus is supposed to be, uh, how the book of Exodus lays out how to construct the tabernacle, the interior portions of the tabernacle are covered in Garden of Eden imagery. The Garden of Eden is in the east. The tabernacle, Solomon's temple, and Ezekiel's temple, by the way, will all face, you guessed it, east. And of course, just as a river flows out of Eden, so does the symbolic river flow out of Ezekiel's temple from Ezekiel 47. There's even a place in Ezekiel 28 where it says that the Garden of Eden was actually located on a mountain. It was a mountain garden, which is one of the reasons why the temple was built on the mountain of Jerusalem when David decided to build it. Now look, we could do that stuff all day long. Here's the point. The garden was what it was because it was a temple. And the temple to these Jewish people was the place where you met God. That's where you dwelled with God. And it was where, where we're going to find out in weeks to come, Adam and Eve would actually walk with God in a visible form, in the cool of the day, whatever in the world that meant. In other words, the garden was a place of happy harmony with God, with themselves, with each other, and with the world around them. Look, here's my point. Work, as it was originally intended, is supposed to be done, as it were, in God's presence as the expression of our relationship with him. With him, yes, but also for him. This is why the Apostle Paul in the New Testament will come up and say things like, he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Or in Colossians 2, 23, whatever you do, work heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now here's my question. Do you hear Paul speaking from a certain story? 
He's living within a certain worldview, a way of understanding his life that I think you can summarize in this particular way. He believed, number one, this. Man was created in the garden to live in God's presence. But, number two, man rebelled against that God and was cast out of the Garden of Eden. But number three, God graciously goes after rebellious man, even to the point of sending his son, so that, four, man could be brought back into fellowship with God and therefore set his hands to repairing the damage that's done by the pervasive effects of sin. That was it. That was the story that Paul believed. And there's no more vivid place in our lives where we can see our stories working out day in and day out than in our jobs. And the point is that there's something about that gospel outline which causes people to think differently about their work. Keller mentioned a devout Mennonite family, uh, the Hersheys of Hershey, Pennsylvania. You know, in the early 1900s, the, the, the Hershey family founded its company on this idea that you could add milk to chocolate and it would make it taste a zillion times better, right? Um, but what happened was, many years later during the Depression in the 1930s, all of these dairy farmers who were flourishing mightily, as you can imagine, under the, use, under the existence of the Hershey's factory, were threatened to go out of business. But Hershey actually made a decision at the midst of that to actually say, I'm, never, I'm not going to lay off one dairy worker from our company. And instead, he made a decision to put them to work in other areas around the city. So much so that at the end of his life, he and his wife established an orphanage so that they could give children practical life skills, which to this day is still funded by proceeds from that company, stock proceeds from the company. Now, here's the question. Why did they do that? Answer, because they were Christians. Because the gospel had given them a new way of thinking about their company, which was not simply about the bottom line. It was about what it was doing in the world, preserving the world, making something better. I, I thought about, for our own uh, application, what happened when Hurricane Katrina hit. 17 years ago, Katrina hit. Can you believe that? 2005. But I remember distinctly watching television. We all watched it back then about how people were just full of vitriol and anger and blaming each other for who, was to, uh, who messed up. It was the U.S. government that messed up. It was the New Orleans Public Works, whatever. But you know what got almost zero attention? Was how many Christians loaded up their pickup trucks with water and with generators so that they could race down to the coast and do whatever they could to relieve suffering. Everybody I've ever talked to who lived through Katrina said that was what made the difference. Why? Because there's a story that we believe about the universe that God is telling that empowers that very thing. And you get glimmers of it throughout the New Testament. Last spring, we talked about Romans chapter 4, where we heard Paul say this in chapter 4, verse 5. He says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And what we said last spring was, Paul is not talking about inactivity. He's saying that the Christian does not work in order to be justified by that work. In other words, we look, we're not looking to our work to make us okay with the world or, in Paul's word, righteous. No, what a Christian has done is he has accepted and entered into someone else's work. This is the magic right here. Because Jesus' work on the cross means 
that all of his followers are following in his wake. W-A-K-E. You know, like, you, like if, if, if you're behind a boat and you see sort of behind it, there's all this ripple effect from the boat plowing through. That is where a Christian lives. We live in the wake of his work. Which is why Paul can say in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you see that? We don't work because we're on a treadmill of trying to get our identity fashioned. We don't work because we're frantically looking for the next place where we can be fulfilled. We work because he has already worked. And I'm living in the midst of his work for good works that Paul will also say he prepared beforehand. Does that make sense? In his work. I work because he works. And my premise this morning is that radical view of our work transforms the way Christians think about it. It means on the one hand that a Christian resists the idea that a company should be driven simply by profits. Absolutely resist that idea. That a Christian works to trace the lines of their product to how it is helping people and not just their stockholders. A Christian is one who looks at the work around a home in the attempts to raise even even mildly well-adjusted children as being something that's going to be a blessing to the world. That's what prompts us. And they do this, most importantly, not because they will feel guilty if they don't. Quite the contrary. A Christian works because God has worked. And the only people who are panicked about their work are those who will die without it. In other words, it is from a posture of spiritual poverty that we get frantic about our work, that we are tied in knots about our jobs. But the truth of the matter is, we're not, we're not poor, are we? We have infinite spiritual resources granted us by the God of heaven, which means that my actual physical monetary resources, I can hold it like this. And I can look around me and say, is there anybody who has need of this? Because I got more than I need. And I can look with humility and say, I'm in a time of lean. Is there someone out there who can help me? We can say this because we have a brand new story, because we do not walk into this world as paupers. My father owns the cattle of a thousand hills, and therefore I own things differently. And that means that I can step out into this world and follow his lead into doing whatever I can to fix the world. Think of this as you go this morning. What is it that awaits you when you sit at your desk tomorrow morning? What, what is it that awaits you there? How do you understand what you step into in that moment? Because the Bible offers us something I think that's beautiful. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you give us a vision of that? Even as we sing in this closing hymn, Father, we pray that we would get a sense of how much you have won for us in your gospel, that we might continue to leaf through the work of Christ on our behalf. And maybe that will transform, Father, how we understand what it is we're to do. Would you grant us that as we sing this morning, as we pray to you? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.